0: When I was a small girl, about six to eight years old, uh, we lived on a beautiful farm in, in Michigan, rural Michigan, and we loved to have people over to our house after church for dinner. And, and so we had that day, this particular Sabbath, we had a large group of young adults and people. At that time, my parents were young adults. We had a large group of people at our house, and we were enjoying each other's company. We were eating, and we were sitting together at the table. Now, the only bad thing is that my seat at the table was at the foot of the table, directly opposite of my father, who was sitting at the head of the table. Now, this might not mean anything to you, but in my home, no one ever wanted to be seated at the table in dad's eye view. You just didn't want that, because my dad had a very rigid idea of how young people should behave at the table. And so you didn't want to be seen by him because you would never have a peaceful meal. And I'm not sure what I was doing, but whatever it was caught my dad's attention and displeased him greatly. And I'm sure, I'm sure he must have tried to get my attention with eye contact or facial expressions, but clearly it didn't work. Because at some point, his frustration overtook him and he jumped up out of his seat and marched around the table in front of all of our guests, and he grabbed a hold of my two hands and lifted my arms up into the air. I'm sure he was trying to shame me into obedience or make an example out of me, but in my child mind, something clicked. And without even a moment of hesitation, as my hands were up in the air, I said boldly for all to hear, the Israelites are winning! (laughs) Now, I'm sure that this was not the result that my dad was going for. But in order to avoid looking like a heel, he went back to his seat and laughed with the rest of us as we went on with our enjoyment of our Sabbath uh, dinner. So I'm very happy that without even knowing about that story, Pastor Chad asked me to share from Exodus 17 that includes this story where Aaron and her held up the hands of Moses during the battle of the Amalekites. We will talk about that story a little bit more as we get into this message. Now also, as Pastor Chad pointed out in his sermon last week, the book of Exodus is so rich that for every chapter we could preach a whole list of sermons. So I promise that I will limit uh, our sermon to one for for us this morning. Um, But Exodus 17 has two stories, and these two stories are very different but they are telling us something about one community. Two stories that are a snapshot of the same community about different ways that they have responded to need and adversity. So, uh, in the book of Exodus so far, all along the way, we have seen that God has been demonstrating how far His providence can go. The escape from Pharaoh and slavery, the crossing of the Red Sea, the defeat of the Egyptian army, and then In chapter 15, the quenching of their thirst by turning what was bitter into something sweet. And in chapter 16, he provides enough for everyone, not only for their needs, but for their wants with the manna and the quail. And now, here we are, arriving at the beginning of chapter 17, and all seems to be going well when we begin by reading the first verse of this chapter. So let's read it together. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1, and it says this, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Shin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. So far, so good, right? If we stopped right there, we would, we would say that this is a good beginning to a good story. And then it says, they camped at Rephidim. And Rephidim means places of rest. Now that sounds good too. So here they are, tired, wandering in the wilderness, experiencing all of these things, and they're arriving at a place called the place of rest. Doesn't that just make you feel relaxed already, that here they come to Rephidim? Well, it sounds really good, but two things happen that make Rephidim not a real place of rest. First of all, when they arrive there, they realize that there's no water, again. And second of all, while they're there camping, they are attacked, and they're forced To go to war. So how many of you have ever been at a place where you just wanted to rest? Anyone? I know the feeling well. In fact, ever since my second son Lance was born, I've never been able to take a nap uninterrupted. It's like clockwork. He decides that when my eyes are closed, it is time to make sure that he knows how much he loves me. Another thing that is new for me, since I just finished my first year as a teacher, I have never looked more forward to summer break in all of my life. (laughs) And it's not because I don't love my students. I love them. I miss them. It's just the unforgiving, relentless pace of the school year. So you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you get to that place where you just want to rest. I remember one time Costa and I were traveling with our family and we were going to arrive late and we had not made a hotel reservation. But being the resourceful guy that my husband is, he got on his phone and he found an app that can get convenient and inexpensive hotel rooms. He found a place, we looked at the pictures, it looked nice, and we continued on to our destination where we arrived sometime around 11.30 or so at night. And as soon as we pulled up, we knew that this might not be a reputable establishment. There was construction everywhere, there was, it just didn't look right. But we decided that we would go in and just get a good night's sleep and then we would just get out of there first thing in the morning. And at first we had trouble even getting to our room because the construction made us have to detour through where the swimming pool was and the pool was empty, the room was eerie, it echoed. And when we entered the hallway where the hotel rooms were in, it was like we had walked into a party. The hall was full of people. Hotel room doors were hanging open. Music was blaring out. People were walking in and out. And I thought, what have we walked into? And then we opened up the, the room door, and we looked inside to the room that we had the key to, and it looked like a tornado had gone through. The bedding was all turned upside down. Every, the room was just a disaster. And all we wanted to do was rest. So like any good citizen would do, we complained. Unfortunately for us that night, there was nothing that the establishment could do to help us, including give us a refund. And so we wandered out into the night, hoping to find another place in the city that apparently everyone else in the world that night also had planned to stay. Ultimately, we did find a room and we did get our rest that day. Um, And now, as Israel arrives at Rephidim, they're in that same mindset, they want to rest. And we know that God has miraculously provided both water and food in the previous chapters. The problem for Israel is the usual one. As, they, as, they, as they've come to Rephidim and they realize there's no water, they seem to forget so quickly that God has provided for them just, just days before. It's, it's like they have forgotten. Over and over again, the stories of Exodus tell us that the people complained or quarreled or grumbled. It's almost like they totally forget that there are other reactions that are possible. Have you ever met anyone like that, where complaining is the only reaction that they have to anything? Have you ever been that person? I confess, uh, I've been known to do my share of grumbling and complaining, although my husband would never admit that because he protects my reputation. But here's something that I've learned about complaining. It actually doesn't make things better. Has it, has it ever made things better for you? In fact, in, in my house, my boys know that if they start complaining about something, two things are going to happen. Number one, very likely they're going to get a, a pretty long mom speech. And number two, they certainly are not going to get what they want. That's what happens with complaining at my house. But God seems to be oblivious to this parenting philosophy because it looks like he just keeps giving the people what they want. It's a parenting disaster. Well, looking at these two stories, we're going to be able to pause and take and ask ourselves some very, very important questions. Number one, what what is God doing? Is he just indulging their temper tantrums so that he can raise an entitled generation? But the questions that are relevant to us are these. How do we respond when we find ourselves in need or in turmoil? And what does our response show about our faith and trust in God? And thirdly, what role does community play in all of this? Let's look at what happens here in the first chapter, uh, first verses of chapter 17 in the first story. If you open there in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 17, we know that Israel has arrived at Rephidim, but not only have they found no rest, they found no water. So they do what they normally do, and in verse 2 it says they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why? Why do you put the Lord to the test? In other words, I'm just a human being like you. What can I do about it? But the people were thirsty for the water there and they grumbled against Moses and they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? A little drama, anyone? A little exaggeration? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. In other words, they had entered into a mob mentality. This is how upset they were over the fact that there's no water, even though just days before, God had provided water for them in a miraculous way. They're ready to commit murder. And the Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead. Take the elders of Israel and the staff that you used to to divide the Red Sea, take it with you, and I will stand before you in front of the rock, strike the rock so water can come out and the people can drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, And then he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? I think it's interesting that the first thing that Moses does is renames the place. He's like, Rephidim, this is not a place of rest. This is a place of trouble. So I'm renaming this place. This place is called Doubt and Trouble. And it's because the people ask the Lord, is the Lord among us or not? This is the burning question of Exodus chapter 17. In fact, it's the question that is addressed by both of the stories that we find here in this chapter. And this question might seem totally absurd to us from our vantage point. We would say it's probably pretty obvious at this point in their story, and it should be obvious to them by now, that the Lord is with them. Wouldn't you say? They've witnessed miracle after miracle. And even after all of this, they are still questioning God's presence and his faithfulness. Now, before we get too critical of the people of Israel, we should stop and ask ourselves, how far are we willing to go, to trust God. Are we able to do that when it gets tough? Will we go only to the edge of our comfort zone before we begin to complain? Any takers? Will we only trust up to that point that God can turn the bitter things sweet or that he can give us what we want when we want it? Or... Will we trust beyond that to where there is no visible resource or no solution and we must depend on God completely in the face of the unknown? Are we ready to trust God that far? Or are we more like the Israelites that as soon as something isn't going our way, even though we know that God can provide for us and we have evidence that he has in the past, that we just go straight to complaining. When God is leading us, how far will we follow? How do we respond when things don't make sense and we can't see a way to get through what lies ahead? We can easily look back on Israel's story and see that God was providing for them all along, but what about us? And the reason I ask this question is because the reality of it is that we can't just say God always provides for his children because in the world that we live in, we know that sometimes we don't feel his providence. And I don't want to wipe that away by just having a Disneyland statement that God always provides for his people and delivers them from trials because we know in our life experience that we don't always experience it that way. To simply say that God is faithful and that he always provides may not be sufficient for everyone. It might seem cliche and insensitive to ignore the fact that many thousands of believing people in our days have died in the agonies of thirst and want even while praying for relief to God just as earnestly as the Israelites and Moses did. It might even be more difficult for us today to perceive God's presence and his providence than it was for them. Because our miracles are not so present and so visible as those that Israel was experiencing during their deliverance. In fact, we might say that in our day, in our time, those kind of miracles are few and far between. So have you ever found yourself asking, is God among us or not? This is the general central question of chapter 17 that both stories center around. And so we need to focus on that question. But there's something else that I want us to notice before we move on to the next story. And that is this. How is God's presence and power represented in this story of the water coming from the rock? There's a specific symbol of his presence and power here. Do you know what it is? What is it that God says, take it with you, and use it to strike the rock? It's the staff. It's the staff that has been with Moses from his calling in the wilderness when he first stood on holy ground. It's not Moses' staff. It's God's staff. It symbolized the power and the sovereignty of Yahweh that had been active all through Israel's exodus and from Egypt, as we have seen, the staff brought the plagues and stopped the plagues. It parted the waters of the Red Sea and it brought them back together again. The staff was visibly and vividly representing Yahweh's presence and power among his people. And now with it, Moses was able to provide for the people and bring water from the rock. So in this first story, as we're reading the story, where in the sequence of the story does the staff come into the picture? At the beginning or at the end? It's at the end of the story, isn't it? The beginning of the story, the people see that there's no water, they complain, they threaten Moses, Moses whines, he says, what do I do? He's exasperated. And at the end of the story, we see the staff of God enter the picture. And when the staff enters the picture, what happens? God's people are provided for. Water comes pouring from the rock. So now that we've established the staff as the representative symbol of God's presence, let's look at the second story found here in Exodus 17 and see what happens when the community of Israel takes a different approach. Because they're still at Rephidim, they're still facing trouble, but this time something different happens. Let's see if you can recognize it as soon as we start reading the story. So, we are now in Exodus 17, starting in verse eight. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. What a place of rest. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Notice anything different from this story? Where is the staff? at the beginning of the story. So let's see if the staff at the beginning of the story makes a difference. It says here that Joshua took the the men out and they fought, and Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill, and as long as Moses held his hands up in the air, the Israelites were winning, but whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other side, so that his hands remained steady till sunset, and Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven." So in this story, what do we notice about the place of the staff in the story? It's at the beginning of the story. And in the story, as Moses lifts his hands, we can only imagine that the staff is in his hands because he has taken the staff to the top of that hill. So the staff representing the presence and power of God, when the presence of power of God is lifted up, then the people of God are winning. And when the presence and power of God is down, it means that human power alone is in action. And we could see that the Amalekites, the enemies of God people, would prevail against them. Lifted high, it meant that Yahweh's power was in action. Lowered, it meant that human power was in action alone. And notice the difference that the staff makes in the story. Here's the question that I have for each of us this morning, not just as individuals, but as a community, because we aren't just reading the story of an individual in these stories, we're reading the story of a community and how a community approaches trial and need and adversaries, right? So in our own lives, in our own community, where do we put the power of God in our stories? Do we resort first to complaining and grumbling and accusations when we face trial or disagreement? Or do we go to God first and acknowledge His leading and His power in our lives before we go into battle? Which one? And regardless of which one may be most true for you or for me, God is patient. And he still finds a way to provide for us. One commentator says this, at the very beginning of their wilderness wandering, God sets out to teach Israel that he can provide for their most basic needs, food and water. He's even willing to give some gracious extras like meat to satisfy the homesick ex-slaves. He is willing to do this in the face of grumbling and unbelief. He graciously blesses, not because of, but in spite of the response of the people. He knows their humanity and their past, so he is patient with them. Amen. He is patient with them. God makes it clear that he is doing all of this so that their trust and their belief in him can grow. He desires that their faith be built and that they learn who he really is. And you know, God is is that patient with us too when we need to grow our faith and learn to trust in him and to get to know who he really is, he gives us space and opportunity to do that. But I might warn you that it may not be in a way that makes us comfortable. If you know God like I do, you've been in more than one uncomfortable situation. But where can we look for answers when we find ourselves asking, like Israel, the question, Is God among us or not? God has provided an answer to this question. Not only one, but two significant answers as he responds with a tangible, resounding yes. Is God among us or not? Yes, he is. Answer number one comes to us in the form of his only begotten son, called Emmanuel. God with us, so that in every dry desert, or every barren wilderness, or every impossible battle, that we could know without a doubt that God is with us, Emmanuel. Jesus did not only die for our sins, did you know that? He also suffered for our suffering. He was despised, rejected, mocked, falsely accused, beaten, tortured, and faced death so that we could know that in our greatest moments of want or need or suffering, that we are not alone. And as great as that is, he did even more than that. He also gave us the very tangible and very present gift of community. Is God among us or not? When we look into each other's faces, we should be able to answer that question. Yes, He is. The role of Aaron and her in the story cannot be overlooked or underestimated. We might not experience the miracles that Israel witnessed, but we can understand what they struggled to grasp that God among us and God with us is most evident in who we are as a community and who we are with each other. The community rises and falls together. Did you know that? We can choose to do things the human way and get human results, fighting and bickering with each other, or we can choose to do things according to God's power and leading in our lives and trust that he will win the victory for all of us. That's what it means to be in community. Why do you think the enemy of God's people wants wants people to defend themselves on their own power and to break down community? Why do you think that is? Because then he knows he can defeat them. His goal is to either take us in the wrong direction collectively While we are negatively complaining and being self-righteous or whatever else that is. Or to break us apart and separate us. Because in doing so, he knows that he can defeat us. And we all know that hardship either separates us or brings us together. When we resort to human methods, we are separated. Blaming, complaining, whining, self pity When we resort to the power of God, then we can come together in victory. God works with people and through people to bring about that which will meet needs. And Pastor Chad talked to us about that last week when he told us, you are the manna. God meets needs for people through people. We can choose to put each other down and go down together, or we can lift each other up and have victory together. And in the moments when someone might be thinking, listen, I don't need the promised land right now. Right now, I just need to make it through this moment and this day, like Israel felt that day when they said, we we just need a drink of water. Then we have community. While we are moving through this world and waiting for the final result of God's salvation, we have the community of God's people to get us through. In the battle against the Amalekites, it took the whole community working together while depending fully on the power and providence of God to win that victory. So what are the main things that we can take away from Exodus chapter 17? There's so many things, we'll just focus on a few. Number one, God does not delight in complaining in a complaining, demanding spirit. You know who delights in that? The enemy of God. But God delights in a heart that trusts him in all situations, regardless of whether or not we can see the outcome. When life gets tough, God wants us to turn to Him first instead of complaining. Are you more prone to pray or to complain in a tough situation? You can answer in your mind. (laughs) Take some time to be honest with God about your feelings. If you're unhappy with a situation in your life, make a conscious decision to take it to God in prayer instead of complaining and grumbling. Confess your complaining attitude that you might have in your heart and see if that makes a difference. Number two, God wants us to be dependent on him and to allow him to use us. And he also wants us to know when it's time to allow others to help us carry our task. That's what community is all about. So where are you on your spiritual journey? Are you feeling dependent on Him, knowing that He is the only one who can truly provide for all your needs? Do you have others in your life that are walking alongside you? Are you committing to walking alongside someone else? The third thing that we can get from Exodus chapter 17 is to remember who God is and what He has done. Now, at the end of the battle of the Amalekites, God says to write it down and then to tell it, to read it aloud so that the commander can hear and all the people can also be reminded. And, and then Moses also builds an altar so that they can remember. You know, the human mind is very quick to forget The Old Testament emphasizes remembering as an important key to a vibrant faith. And because of this, special action is taken here in this story to keep the memories alive. So then the question remains for us, what are we doing to keep the memories of who God is and what he has done alive in our lives, in our homes, in our community? The world that we live in will always try to convince us that God is not with us, that God is not among us. But when we stand together, when we fight together, when we pray together, when we lift each other up, when we remember and we tell the stories of the ultimate battle that has been fought and won by Emmanuel, God with us then the enemies of God's people will never be able to convince us otherwise. That is what gives us the courage, the audacity, the faith of a child when all of the odds are against us, when we are outsized and exposed to stand together in that battle and to raise our hands and call out, the Israelites are winning. Are you with me?